I want to thank you for listening today. If you have not subscribed to our podcast, please do so and feel free to rate and review us as well. If you live nearby and do not have a church home, we would love for you to come visit us here at Fellowship Bible Church in Jacksonville, Texas. You can connect with us by calling or texting CONNECT to 903-586-6520. If you would like to support the ministry here at Fellowship Bible Church, we would greatly appreciate that as well. To give one time or on a regular basis, you can text GIVE to 903 903- 586-6520. If you live a ways away, we hope you would find a good Bible-believing and preaching church in your area to join and serve in and support. Thanks again for joining us. We hope you have a great week. Have you ever experienced rejection? Maybe it was Spot on the basketball or baseball team in junior high or high school. Maybe it was when you asked that certain someone to a school dance. Maybe it was that college you applied to or that job you interviewed for. We have all experienced rejection at one time or another, to one degree or another. And with rejection, sometimes it is merited. Sometimes it's, it's deserved. Maybe you, you lack certain skills athletically or the grades academically. But at other times, rejection is, is not deserved. For the next two Sundays, we're going to be talking about rejection that is deserved and rejection that is not deserved. We're going to discuss just and unjust rejection. You have your Bibles turned to Judges chapter 10. Back in Judges, for the next two weeks, we're going to talk about the story of Jephthah, and we will be looking at how God responds to the rejected and how He responds to rejection. We will cover Judges 10 through 12 in the next couple of weeks. We're not going to get as far this morning further next week. We're going to see how God's people wrongly reject God and reject the people God sends into their lives and how they reject God's grace. And we will also see how God rightly rejects those who reject Him and how He uses those rejected by His people for His purposes. Okay? Let's pick up reading where we left off last time. I know it's been a while. You've slept a few nights since then. It's Judges chapter 10, verse 6. Last time we were together, we looked at at Gideon's story, and then we looked at his wicked son Abimelech's story. God's people have entered into the land of promise. The period of the judges takes place in between Joshua and before the time of the kings, okay? It's a very dark Period. One of the darkest in God's people's history in the Old Testament. They have failed to do what God called them to do, which is drive their enemies out. And these enemies that are allowed to remain, they're going to cause God's people problems in the promised land. They're allowed to remain and they eventually 
influence God's people in all types of negative ways, and they lead them away from God. And while God punishes His people for their sinfulness, we also see His mercy and grace and love in the book of Judges. He graciously saves them through a number of different judges. And we're going to see that pattern continue today and next week. To begin, I want you to see point number one, once again, God's people reject God and serve idols. That's the first rejection we see. The pattern continues. Look at Judges chapter 10, verse 6. The people of Israel, again, you say, again, yes, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the God of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve Him. We said at the beginning of this study, that we will see God's people drift further and further from God in this book until they resemble that of the Canaanites surrounding them. They failed to obey the words of God through Joshua. They failed to drive out the foreign nations from the land of promise. And they eventually become just like the wicked people that they allow to remain around them. And we're witnessing that here. Notice in this text, we're told they're not just worshiping the gods of, of the false gods of Baal and, and Asheroth, but also the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. The number of idols here is seven. Many commentators have drawn attention to this number. Often the number seven is used in Scripture for completion. Daniel Block in his commentary on Judges, he says this, look at this quote. The seven-member list highlights the total spiritual corruption of the nation. They are completely given over to the gods of the Canaanites. Regardless of whether that number is to be singled out as being significant or not, I believe it is. I think we will all agree that God's people at this point are completely given over to the false gods of their enemies. And this rejection of their God to follow the gods of their enemies is foolish for a number of reasons. One is the fact that they had already defeated these nations. They had been victorious over them and their false gods. Remember Ehud, remember him? Pleasant story. Killed the fat Eglon. That's what it says in the text. I'm not being mean. The king of Moab. He delivered God's people from them. Gideon had torn down the altar of Baal. No harm came his way. Earned him the nickname Baal Crusher. Jerubbaal, right? He also defeated the Midianite and Ammonite armies. Shamgar killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad, saving Israel. Pagan belief at this time was that if a nation was defeated by another nation, the God of the conquering nation would be viewed as being supreme. All right? Pagan-minded Israel at this time should have been thinking in this way. Not that it's right to think in that way, because there's no God but the one true God, right? of the Scripture, but that's the way they were thinking. But they 
foolishly overlooked the fact that the one true and living God had crushed the pagan nations surrounding them. They served the inferior gods of their defeated enemies. And get this, they ended up being enslaved by them. That's another reason they should have had nothing to do with the idols of their enemies. Every time they exchanged the devotion of the living God for idols, what resulted was enslavement by those pagan nations. We learn from the poor example of Israel in Judges. Idolatry leads to enslavement. Write that down. Idolatry leads to enslavement. It absolutely does. Every time you can bank on it. Whenever we reject God, it always leads to slavery, to sin. How have we rejected God today? How have we been enslaved to sin? How how are we guilty of, of being enslaved by idols today? I'm sure none of you have altars in your neighborhood to Baal that people frequent on the regular, right? While that may be true, we have fallen into the same trap as God's people Israel. We too have been guilty of disobeying God, serving the idols of our culture. Idolatry can simply be defined as this. Look at this definition up on the screen. This is taken from the New City Catechism. We have it in our bookstore. You need to pick it up if you don't own it. Idolatry is defined in this way. Trusting in created things rather than the Creator for our hope and happiness, significance, and security. Idols could be money, fame, sex, respect, success, family. It could be one or a combination of those things. could be a good thing. That's become a bad thing because it's become a ruling thing. could be a good thing. That's become a God thing. Work and productivity are good things. Given before the fall, cannot rule your heart. Right? Money makes a good servant. Makes a bad master. We too, like God's people Israel, are easily duped into believing that there is happiness to be had in our world today through worldly success and fame. We are easily lured away by the immorality that we witness in our world that our flesh believes brings pleasure and happiness. We continue to draw and draw from the well and we come up empty time and time and time again. We see what we think is happiness from others, drawing from that same well, and we invest in those exact same idols and become enslaved to those things. It's a similar problem, isn't it? The Israelites were enslaved because of idolatry. Foolish. Foolish. And you know what? Hey, we witness this every day of our lives. Go home. You'll see it. Turn on the TV. You'll see it. Go out today. You'll see it. People pursuing happiness under the sun, believing that's going to give them happiness that lasts. It won't. It's a lie. Here's the most important reason it was foolish to reject God and serve idols. God is the one true and living God of all. We've said an idol isn't anything. 
This morning we read Psalm 115. In this psalm, the psalmist reminds us, idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell, hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they, they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them, get this, become like them. So do all who trust in them. Idolatry leads to enslavement. I pray you see it today. Whatever idols have enslaved you, I pray you see there is no lasting happiness to be had in those things. Can the blessings God gives, can they be enjoyed? Should they be enjoyed? Absolutely. God has created you and me physical in a physical world to enjoy it, right? We're not to be Gnostics. We're to enjoy the blessings that God gives, but they must not rule your heart. They cannot be looked to to provide what only God can give. There is lasting happiness to be had in this life, but not in the things of the world. Lasting happiness is found in and through a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ and a life lived for Him. There you go. Next point. In response to God's people wrongly rejecting Him and serving idols, God rejects His people and sends them into captivity. He rightly does that. Look at verse 7. They're going to be enslaved once again. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and He sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. They're in a really bad way. They were enslaved by the very nations that they followed. They served the idols of these wicked nations. And so God uses these very nations to enslave His people. He rightly, He justly rejects them and allows them to be enslaved. He does it by the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites. Why use them? I mean, they're wicked too, right? If not more so than His own people, why use them? Well, we talked about this last time. This is an interesting detail in God's providential work. This will really help you when you read your Old Testament, right? And when you read the New as well, it'll help you when you read your Bibles to, to understand God's work in this way. While He is not the cause of evil, He allows it and works in and through it for His redemptive purposes. While He allows evil to remain for a time. He does not allow evil just to roam free. He doesn't allow that. He uses it for His purposes. Here He uses the wicked nations to punish His wicked people. And guess what? He will later punish these wicked nations as well. But not before He's going to use them to punish His wicked people. God's in the driver's seat. There are many times in Scripture when God uses 
wicked nations, corrupt leaders, to punish and defeat wicked nations and corrupt leaders. And while God allows for and uses evil to punish evil, all evil parties will eventually stand judgment before God unless they repent. That's the way God works, right? He's in complete control. It is His anger that is kindled against Israel and, and, and He is the one who has sold them into the hand of their enemies and He is just in doing so because He's Creator God. And guess what? He doesn't play second fiddle to anyone or anything. He created them to live for Him and bring glory to Him, and they rejected Him. God is just in rejecting them because they have rejected Him. And guess what, folks? Same is true for all of us. It's also stated in the New City Catechism. Look at this. This is why we were created. God created us, male and female, in His own image, to glorify Him. We have rejected God in the world He has created. We have failed to be and do what He has required in His law. We have turned away from the God who made us. We have set ourselves against Him, and He has rightly set against us. Praise be to God that He provides a way of escape for us. He provides it through the person and work of His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus came to live the perfect life in our place, lay that perfect life down so that we through Him could be forgiven of sin and restored to God through faith in Him. You're not trusting in Christ alone for your salvation today. I pray you come to the realization that Christ is your only hope. He's your only hope, your only way of escape, your only way of rescue from the judgment that is coming. I pray you would forsake your sin, trust in Christ alone for your salvation. Judgment awaits all God's enemies who remain set against Him in sin. God rejects those who reject Him. Next point. God rejects His people's empty confession and refuses to respond with salvation. This is an interesting point. Let's look at it here. Verses 10 through 13. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites and the Moanites oppressed you, and you cried to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods, therefore I will save you no more. Now that's different, isn't it? This chapter... To start, is, it was sounding eerily similar to, to the ones preceding it until this passage here. Notice they cry out to the Lord. They confess their sin. They say, we've sinned against you. We've forsaken God. We, we've served Baals. You would think that that would be music to the Lord's ears. That sounds like a cry for repentance, doesn't it? How does God respond? I will not save you. What is up with that? 
Is this not the same God who leaves the 99 to seek and save the one sheep who is lost? Here God says, Did I not save you from your enemies? Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. What is going on here? Simple. Their confession is an empty one. God knows what's in their hearts. He tells them, you have forsaken me. You have chosen to serve other gods, the gods of your enemies. You're crying out to me like you would a pagan idol. You're coming to me because you're severely distressed, as it says in verse 9. Their confession is an empty one. Their cry is not one of brokenness over sin, but agony over the consequences that come as a result of sin. There's a difference. There are people who desperately want rescue from sin's consequences who are not in the least bit sorry for their sin and are not seeking a renewed and restored relationship with the Lord of all creation who is the only rescue for sinners. We learn here in Judges 10, get this, a profession of faith won't cut it. I've been to certain churches where to join, they'll ask you, have you made a profession of faith? Listen, we can profess a lot of things. We can. Anyone can say, Lord, Lord. It's not just about making, uh, making a profession of faith. Get this, it's about having a possession of faith. We need to repent and profess belief in Christ, but that profession must come, stem from an inward transformation. Our confession of faith must stem from a possession of faith. It's not just about saying the right things, it's about having the right heart. Okay? We're told this time and time again in Scripture. It's clear. Jesus says in Matthew 7.21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Good works do not save us, but they do flow from a life that's been changed. Okay? Faith alone is the root of our salvation, but good works are the fruit of salvation. Jesus talked about this when He said, I'm the vine, you're the branches, right? A branch not connected to the vine is, is dead, fruitless, be thrown away, discarded. Christ must be in us. We must be changed. God tells them in Judges 10, while you have repented, you are not truly repentant because, He says, while you have repented, you have not repented because you're unrepentant. All right? Mark that down. <laughs> while you have repented, you have not truly repented because you're unrepentant. That's what He's saying here. You have forsaken Me. You've served other gods, therefore I will save you no more. Have you truly repented of your sin? Have you come to the realization that your sin is an offense against holy God? Have you turned from that sin? And sin, by the way, is just going in life on your own, apart from and opposed to God, trying to carve out your own existence in your own strength, apart from Him. That's the sin of Adam. That's the sin of us all. You need to repent of that 
You need to come to the end of yourself and fall at the feet of Jesus and trust in Him alone for salvation with nothing in your hand. Solely trusting in Him. Have you done that? Have you turned from your sin? Have you placed your faith alone in Christ alone? Notice what else they're doing that God is accusing them of. Look at verse 14. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. God's people Israel had been so influenced by the pagan nations surrounding them that they were approaching the one true and living God like they do the false gods of their enemies. They're they're trying to say and do the right things in hopes of activating salvific activity from God. They're treating Him like one of their pagan idols. God will not be treated in this way. He's not a puppet that you can manipulate to do your own bidding. Let me remind you of another line from the psalm we read today. Psalm 115.3 Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. He is sovereign over you, not the other way around. Don't get that flip. While it's easy to come down hard on the Israelites, don't we at times treat God in this sort of tit-for-tat way? God, if I do this... You'll do this, right? God, I did this. Why are you doing that? I'm faithful. Why am I suffering? He or she appears to struggle with faithfulness, yet you're pouring out your blessings on them. We do that, don't we? That's a flawed way of looking at your life and our current existence in this broken and fallen, sin-stained world in which we live. You see, because of sin, we deserve death. We all do. Any blessing that we receive, get this, it's grace. Grace. The fact that you're here this morning living and breathing is by grace. You know what Scripture says? You sin, you die. Therefore, if you're living, grace. Right? We deserve death and judgment for sin. God in Christ, through Him we receive salvation and life. We also learn in Scripture that while God does show us unmerited and undeserved favor, we still live in a broken and fallen world. That's why we suffer in this life, right? We're still affected by the consequences of sin in our lives and world. There are times also when God allows or suffering to discipline us. Scripture says that's how we know we're His children, when He disciplines us. You don't normally discipline someone else's kids, do you? That's a parent's job. You know whose kids are who when it comes time for discipline, right? Same is true with God. He delivers us from trials and difficulties because... He is a loving and good God, and at times He allows difficulties to remain for our benefit. He allows the difficulties to remain here. He does not respond with salvation here in Judges 10, but it's for their benefit. They're not truly repentant. So He allows those those consequences to remain. You know what results from that? True repentance. That's grace. Next point, 
After God rightly rejects His people's empty confession of sin and refuses to respond with salvation, last point here, God's people finally get it. They reject idols and serve the Lord. God's people rightly reject idols and they serve the Lord. Look at verses 15 through 16. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Boy, that's a good response. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods. Another great response. They put away the foreign gods from among them and they served the Lord. See, they're wanting to hang on to these foreign gods. Do you see that? They're still clutching tight to them as they're making these empty confessions. But they finally put them away. God says, I will not save you. So they put them away and served the Lord. And the Lord became impatient over the misery of Israel. That means He's merciful to their suffering. And He responds. At first, God's people were being duplicitous in worship, bowing down and swearing to the Lord, while also serving all these different foreign gods. You see now why God is angry. You see the reason for His harsh words, right? I will save you no more. They're trying to follow God and the false gods of Canaan. God lets them know here they are to serve Him and Him alone. And this is nothing new. Moses said this, right? God said this through Moses, thou shalt have no other gods before me, right? You know that phrase, before me? It literally means in my presence, okay? So theology 101, where is the presence of God? Everywhere. So if God says, no, the God's in my presence, and God's presence is everywhere, we're to have no other gods anywhere. Yeah, that works out, right? No other gods, no rivals, period. That's what God wants from you. He wants your soul devotion. He wants you to love and serve Him with no rivals, period. He has not changed. That's the way it was with Moses. That's the way it was in Judges 10. That's the way it is today. Who or what do you worship? What rivals your relationship with God? God wants those idols rooted out of your heart. That is the work He is graciously doing here in Judges 10. I pray He be gracious to us in that way. And He do, does whatever it takes in, in our own lives to root out those idols. His people were being duplicitous in worship, trying to serve God while serving idols. So God graciously denies their pleas for help till they put away those foreign gods and they seek Him and Him alone. That's what true repentance is. It's abandoning idolatrous pursuits and following hard after the one true and living God. They finally do, and when they do, God responds. He was moved to finally act. God is a merciful God. When God's people truly repent, when they put away these foreign idols, cry out to God, and God alone, God is moved to act in their favor. His mercy moves him. His love drives them, drives him to deliver them. We'll talk more about that next week, okay? We'll pick up 
verses 17 and 18 of Judges 10. Then we're going to go all the way through Judges 12, okay? So read that this next week. Let me end with this, believers. What, what stands in the way of you faithfully following hard after God? Let me remind you of the words of the, the author of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Let us also lay every weight and sin, lay it aside, which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. What do you need to lay aside to run the race that God has called you to run? Notice he doesn't just say lay aside sin. He says every weight and sin. Laying aside sin is about the, the least you can do. What he's saying there is put away anything that hinders you from running for the Lord. You see that? What's hindering you? What do you need to lay aside so that you can pursue God with all you have? Maybe you're listening this morning and you've not repented of your sin. You're not trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. You will not be saved unless you repent. Scripture is crystal clear. The Lord will not Save the unrepentant. Jesus says, unless you repent, you will perish. You must turn from your sin and believe in the one who left heaven for earth, the one who lived, died, and rose again so that you could be saved, the Lord Jesus Christ. We said earlier that God is a merciful God. He certainly is. We're told in Scripture that His mercy endures forever, but we're also told in Scripture that His mercy will not endure for everyone forever. There is coming a day when Christ is returning to judge and condemn, and on that great and terrible day, it'll be too late to turn to Him. For that reason, I want to leave you today with this. I want to leave you with the invitation from the prophet Isaiah. He says this, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Let's pray.